What is going on, guys? Welcome to another episode of the Boom Boom Performance Podcast. Today is a Q&A, and I'm actually super fired up for this one, not only because there's some excellent questions, a lot pertaining to training and nutrition, but we also have some cu- a couple uh, random ones about music and lifestyle factors and stuff that I'm going to get into, but the main reason is because I haven't done a Q&A in like three weeks. I took a full break from podcasting for just a one week, just to kind of load up the uh, chamber, so to speak, with episodes, but also to take a break from pushing content so much and just kind of rejuvenate. I think everybody needs to take a time to take a step back so they can take eight steps forward. And speaking of which, this is the first week of 2019. So as you can imagine, this is my week for taking 12 steps forward. So I'm really focused on that right now, but it helped that I took a break and I just relaxed a little bit. Then the next week we had interviews, then it was like leading into the holiday, then it was leading into New Year's, and then it was New Year's Day. So it was like this whole last few weeks, I haven't even been able to do a Q&A. So I've been actually stocking up questions and waiting for today so I could record a Q&A based off the last few weeks of questions that were sent in through the Boom Boom Elite, which is linked in the description below, um, the private forum, which you get access to when you uh, download any of our ebooks, um, purchase any of our ebook programs, you get access into this group. So from there as well, and a couple from Instagram too that just randomly got sent to me. So super excited to get this one going. And before we do, I just want to remind you guys that I created a special page for you guys to get access to all of our content, both paid and free. So if you are interested in our free ebooks, the free nutrition seminar, you want to inquire about one of our training programs, like literally everything we offer, you can check it out at boomboomperformance.com slash content. If you go there, it's like a menu of what we offer. Not included are blogs and podcasts and things like that, but you know where to go for that, boomboomperformance.com. Last but not least, guys, help us grow this show. 2019, one of my biggest priorities um, for business, my life, my career, my purpose, my passion is to help more people and to create more free content, believe it or not. I want to do more podcasts, more videos, more blogs, more ebooks where we have so many things in store, including seminars and speaking engagements and masterminds and different things I'm hosting. And I'm just super excited because the more things that I can cram into 2019 to deliver value, the more lives I touch, the more people we can help, the more people we reach. And therefore it's like a spider web effect. And those people are going to go affect more and more people positively. And it's this accumulation that leads to us helping a million people and touching a million lives, which is the overall goal of Boom Boom Performance. So what you can do to help me do this in 2019, guys, is number one, take a screenshot of the show. Instagram is our main social media platform, as you probably are aware. So what you can do for me is screenshot this show. Let us know who you are. I want to know who's listening to the show. Let me know when I DM you back what you like about the show or who you want to see on the show. Like, talk to me. I want to know so I can create more content to help you specifically. But most importantly, tag me at Cody.BoomBoom and post this screenshot on your Instagram story. I want people to know that this podcast is available for free for them to get better results so we can reach more lives and you can help us do that. The other way you can do that is go leave a five-star rating and review on iTunes. Really easy to do, guys. It takes a few days for it to process, but this helps us tremendously grow inside the iTunes rankings, and it's been really cool to go back and look at all the different reviews and all the five stars. We've never had anything less than a five star, which is super, super um, important to me and super powerful and just meaningful to me. It, it, it's just There's nothing better than me looking at those reviews and seeing that you guys are enjoying this show. So enough of me ranting, guys. Happy New Year. I'm excited to start 2019 with a bang, and I'm even more excited to get into this Q&A. All right, let's get on to the first question. Today's first question is from, I might pronounce this wrong. As always, you guys know me for this. Adrian, it's either Adrienne or Adriana, A-D-R-I-E-N-N-E, Frank Ling. If you are following a four-day upper-lower split like functional muscle, but your schedule only allows for three days that week, what do you do? Can you double up one day or is that bad? So basically what she wants to know is should I do like an upper lower day and then a lower and upper day afterwards? Should I do um, – I want to say she asked if she should just skip one and go to the next week. Like she had a couple things in the comments of like what should she basically do. The way I would set it up is two, one of two things. Number one, I would consider doing a full body split. I truly believe that – when you can only train three days a week, I think the best option is a full dot, uh, full body, sorry, 
lost my words, full body training split. Even if it's not a three-day program, um, there's there's one inside the Boom Boom Elite. Um, there's actually <laughs> countless inside the Boom Boom Elite that is four days a week with, or it's three days a week with an optional fourth day. So basically you can remove that fourth day or you can push it into the next week, kind of like Robin Peter to pay Paul, kind of like a carryover. Um, what you can also do, there's a five-day a uh, full body split inside the boom boom elite with an extra recovery day. So it's a six day training program, all full body. Same thing. If you can only do three days, your quote unquote micro cycle, which is basically like your week of training, isn't really like Monday to Monday or like seven days in a row. It's whenever you finish that first block, that first micro cycle. So your micro cycle might be eight days, nine days, 10 days, 14 days. If you need to extend it, if it's a six day full body program, you could extend that out to two weeks long, and that's your one micro cycle. That way, by the end of the month, or in your case, every two months, you're still getting the same amount of volume in. So my first recommendation would probably be to switch to a full body routine. If you've never done that before, it's probably going to work really well for you in general anyway because it's such a dramatic change. I find that when I switch people from an upper lower to a full body or vice versa, every 8 to 12 weeks, which is something I do pretty frequently with my clients, they see dramatic results. And I hate using the term shock the body because I think that's a very cheesy and just not fully true um, way to explain it. It's not very scientific, but the reality is, is we are creating a pretty new stimulus, something your body is not used to. And like the old saying goes, the best program is the program you're not on right now. So I do believe that that switch and that dramatic change does influence the body um, in your favor. So I would probably switch to a full body routine. Now, if adherence is lower with full body because you enjoy upper lower, then by all means stick to an upper lower because we know that adherence is the number one key to success long term. What I would do in that situation is probably do the same thing, Rob Peter to pay Paul. Week one might be upper, lower, upper, and then week two might be lower, upper, lower. Week three, back to upper, lower, upper, and you're kind of just alternating it. So you always have two lower days, one upper day, or two upper days, one lower day. Again, instead of a seven-day micro cycle, your micro cycle becomes, what would that be, uh, nine days? I believe nine or ten days, basically extending into a week and a half, essentially, um, because your micro cycle would be Monday, Wednesday, Friday, Monday, right? And then you start again on Wednesday. Um, this makes your mesocycle a little bit longer, which is fine as well. The mesocycle would be the entire phase of that program. Um, functional muscle has three phases within the nine-week program. So in that case, yours would extend past like 12 weeks, which is totally fine. I've had people do that. And it's even the same thing in functional muscle two, which is a five-day split that goes upper-lower push-pull legs. It's a five-day week training. Some people can't do that. So the way we break it down is the same thing. We extend the microcycle, and I actually explain how to do that inside the guide itself. Um, so there's a lot of ways to do it. That's probably how I would do it. I wouldn't double up days. The other option, the third option, which would be my third recommendation, is to go upper, lower, full body. So the way you could do that would be, or you can go full body and then upper, lower. Your upper, lower days would be hypertrophy-specific days, um, where you're definitely targeting higher rep ranges. You're doing more pump work. You're, you're doing more bodybuilding style training, shorter rest periods. So you can get more volume in because the density of the training session is shorter, essentially meaning you can do more work without being at the gym for hours and hours. Um, but you have two days like that, an upper day for hypertrophy, a lower day for hypertrophy, and then your third day, or if you want to do this first, um, which is probably how I would do it. Actually, now that I think about it, I'm kind of talking as I'm thinking of this, because as you guys know, I just kind of do these off the cuff, but I would probably do the full body strength day first because that's going to be the most neurological, neurologically demanding day. Um, and basically that means you're going to be hitting your nervous system a little bit harder because you're doing full body. It's a little bit more taxing and you're going to be in that lower rep strength range. So basically you would do two days, upper, lower hypertrophy, like I just mentioned. And then the other day would be a full body day and you're doing strength. So maybe you literally do it like kind of like the classic DUP, daily undulated periodization style, um, you go in and you literally go bench squat deadlift, right? So if you did a bench press in the five by five range, you did a squat in the five by five range, you did a deadlift in the five by five range, and then maybe you finished your day with some like low rep T-bar rows um, with a chest supported. So you don't have to have like your low back in a vulnerable position, but you're getting a very heavy horizontal row. You could do a heavy weighted chin up, um, finish with some sled work or carry some kind of posterior chain. So you are getting some horizontal pulls. But essentially that third day or the first day is a full body strength day. That's probably going to be the most beneficial. And actually now that I think about it, I'd probably actually put that second 
in my recommendation. So I'd recommend going to a full body split. Then I would recommend this last way I just explained it. And then last but not least, I would recommend doing the uh, kind of carrying over and extending the microcycle. And the only reason I, I recommend doing that last is because functional muscle is built in a way to be training four days per week. So the way I designed that program is very specific. And I think a lot of people alter programming when they purchase it or when they can't stick to it very consistently or they just get bored and they start changing things around. And the reality is there's a reason for everything we do inside of a training program. It's an art. There's specific exercise sequencing. There's specific exercise ordering and uh, selection depending on your fatigue throughout a training session and how much energy you have. Also, a joint-by-joint -joint approach of how you're setting up your program to make sure you're minimizing joint stress. So there's a lot of things that go into it, and it's not only for that specific day, but it carries on throughout the week. There's a reason why session A is before B and C is after B, right? And when we start changing these things too much, I just find that you're kind of shifting the way the program is supposed to work. So that was a very long-winded answer for you. I think I could have answered that a little bit less time, but the reality is, is that probably gave you more than enough information to actually get what you need out of the program or out of the, uh, the way your training split is going to be. All right, so next question comes from James Ward. Where do you draw the line on safely adding weight when you are working around old injuries? Double hernia a few years back he had. Um, do you recommend staying around 85% of one rep max and work on it, adding rep sets versus adding weight? Are there any negatives with not continually adding weight to your lifts? I'm currently squatting 225 and barbell deadlifting 275. Thanks. A lot of good information here. Um, there's a few things that I want to touch on with this. So, like, where do you draw the line on safely adding weight when you're working around old injuries? Uh, double hernia a few years back. I think it depends, like, on your goals. So, I'm going to give myself as an example just because I don't want to put any clients on blast, but like basically uh, I'm actually going through this right now. Ten years ago, which is crazy to think that it was a decade ago, I tore my meniscus. And when I tore my meniscus, I had surgery on it. Um, they had to replace it. I gained weight, didn't do rehab properly, didn't go to PT because I was busy partying and being a kid. And long story short, it didn't rehabilitate very well. I still went and played soccer. I wasn't training at this time. I never stepped foot in the gym. I went and played soccer, and I ended up tearing my ACL on the same knee less than a year later when I tried to get back into the sport. I didn't have surgery on this one, but it caused more weight gain. It caused more need for a rehabilitation, and long story short, I just never fixed the issue, right? I gained weight, and so when I looked in the mirror, I was like, well, soccer's over. I can still skateboard because I don't need to sit ass to heels to skateboard um, at the level I was skateboarding at. It would have helped me quite a bit because I can absorb the shock of a landing a little bit better, but... I wasn't thinking of that. I looked in the mirror and I didn't like what I saw. So what I did was focus on aesthetics. I was like, I need to build muscle. I need to burn fat, plain and simple. And the way I did that is I worked around old injuries, like you said. So the reason I'm sharing this is because I achieved great aesthetics. I got on stage, shredded. I've done multiple photo shoots. I can stay lean year round. I have a good amount of muscle mass and a low body fat percentage on a constant basis. And I did all that while working around my knee, right? I couldn't ever PR on a squat, to really. I, I hit a plateau around that like 350 to 375 pound range, which for my body weight and for how long I've been training, um, I, I really should be able to squat probably 400 or more. Um, but I could never break past that. And it wasn't even because I had weak quads. It was because my knee wouldn't allow, um, number one, stability, number two, range of motion, and number three, the mental capacity to do a heavy squat because I would trip every time I put a heavy bar on my back. Um, and I mean, if you look, so I, I front squatted 315. So that squat ratio from front to back squat only being 45 to 50 pounds of difference, like that's not a good sign. I should be able to squat way more. Um, but I, I ignored it and I didn't care because I just wanted to get lean and shredded and build muscle. And I did that. So if your goal is only aesthetics, I would say you can absolutely safely work around old injuries. What you're going to do is add weight to lifts that do not affect your specific injury. So for me, I could still deadlift heavy because it wasn't a, a exercise that demanded a ton of knee stability or, um, I mean, there was still a relative amount, but I was able to do that because there wasn't a ton of knee flexion in that exercise. I mean, right now I can touch my heel to my butt easily on my right side and I'm almost a foot away on my left side. Like that's how bad the flexion is, probably like 50% difference. Um, but my point is you can safely add weights to the, to the exercises that do not affect your herniated disc, right? Um, you had a double hernia, I'm sorry. So if you 
have specific exercises that affect that, I wouldn't add load to those. What I would do is I would add tension. I would change loading patterns. I would change exercise selection. I would slow down the negatives and the tempo and the tension of the muscle. I would focus on activation of the muscle. I would add volume via reps and sets over time at a lower moderate rep range. And yeah, I probably, or weight range, I probably wouldn't go above 85% of one rep max on that. Um, but the other caveat is, is if you want to build strength in the long run, you have to fix that issue. So like for me right now, my goal is not aesthetics. I've done that. I'm, I'm happy with where I'm at and I don't really care to be like shredded all the time. I probably will do another photo shoot and get super lean because I, I enjoy those things and it's good to be in the trenches of what I put my clients through. But the key here is I have a different purpose now. I want to be able to sit on the floor my ass touching my heels with my daughter. I want to kneel on the floor and, and sit on my heels. I can't do that. Never could. I couldn't do it when I did BJJ. I can't do it with my daughter right now. Um, and I want to be able to function better. I know that because of my knee, I've also had some growing issues. I've had some lower back and some QL issues. I also have a right shoulder issue that's just like clicking and some elbow pain. And all those things are probably stemming from the knee because 10 years of unfunctional training and working around injuries isn't going to help the rest of my body and it's catching up with me. So what my advice for you would be right now, if your goal is aesthetics, I would work around it and try to get to your goal. And then after that, if you do want to progress your strength and if you want to remove any pain that you have, because just because you had a double hernia doesn't mean you don't have pain right now. You could or you could not. I don't know. Um, but if you want to move past pain, if you want to move into a more functional movement pattern and, and success and actually increase strength in your deadlift and stuff, I would probably recommend fixing the issue, getting someone to help rehab. I'm working with Active Life RX because uh, um, my good friend, Dr. Sean Pastouche, runs that company, and he's helping me uh, quite a bit with that stuff. So that's somebody I would recommend. Dr. John Russin is another friend of mine, um, really good with this stuff. But the point is, is working with somebody that could help you with that. Even myself, like I've worked with a ton of people who have had low back issues, and it's a matter of I mean, it really depends after you see an assessment. Is it ankle mobility? Is it thoracic mobility? Is it hip mobility? Is it imbalances in muscles, tendons? There's so many different things going on. But the point is, is if you want to move past those plateaus, you probably want to fix the issue, um, unless aesthetics is your only goal. Another long-winded answer, but I think the key there is, like, there's so many routes you can take. Aesthetics, aesthetics equal, yes, we can work around and progress in different ways. Um, being functional and, and chasing aesthetics with a very slow strength progression, uh, yes, again, you would want to progress through different modalities, like something inside my recent muscle uh, movement by mu or sorry muscle by movement program inside the elite. That's the whole priority there. Is it's not really about progressing weight on the accessory work. It's can we change the loading pattern? Can we change the exercise variation? Can we change the tempo? Can we add pauses? Can we do things that are going to in going to inc to increase to increase in versus adding load to the bar, adding load to the dumbbells every single week because that's not always possible. All right, next question is Bridget Brevik. This is a longer one, but she gave me a lot of information, so this might be good. Any advice for cutting body fat slash weight? It's been a stressful couple months. Pre-ACL surgery. It's funny. I just talked about my ACL. I was powerlifting four to five times per week, added a job and stress, and cut down to one to two times a week for the past couple of months. Finally got a new job and quit the stress with plans of eating more consistently and being able to hit the gym again. But then I tore my ACL, MCL. Damn, both. Lower body is now uh, physical therapy. I can still lift upper and core. I want to be able to fit in my clothes better and also have less weight slash stress on my knee. Surgery is probably two months out depending on insurance and how my MCL does with a physical therapist. Uh, I'm incredibly frustrated. So, Bridget, here's like my number one thing is hire a nutrition coach. The reality is, is during pre-surgery and during surgery, a couple of things are going on. Number one, your body is under an immense amount of stress and inflammation. Two reasons why we need to prioritize specific nutrition prescriptions. Because we can implement different macro ratios and different micronutrient demands in order to facilitate stress better and facilitate anti-inflammation better and get through your plateau and get through your surgery, not only healing faster, recovering faster and lowering stress, but also cutting weight. Obviously your activity is going to drop down to tremendously and you can't train upper body every single day. Something I recently did with a client who tore their ACL and I actually have a couple knee, uh, 
issue clients right now, um, and this philosophy worked really well, is we completely shifted their macro. So instead of a higher carb approach because she was more of an athlete, we shifted into a higher fat approach. I wanted her satiety to be higher. I wanted to get a lot of anti-inflammatory foods to help the healing process. I still wanted to keep protein up high because, again, that's going to uh, help facilitate better tissue repair, which is needed not only from a muscle standpoint, but also from a uh, recovery standpoint from the ACL surgery. Um, it's also going to make sure that we are maintaining as much muscle tissue as possible, right? You are out of the gym and you're not going to be training as frequently. Therefore, there's, there's really two things we can do here to maintain muscle when you're doing a cut, and that's going to be high protein or strength training. Strength training is very limited for you, so we need to keep protein high. And we reduced carbs because we're not doing much glycolytic activity. The next thing I did once they had a plateau on that was actually implement alternate, alternate day fasting. So every other day was a rest day slash fast day. So now we're training and we're fueling our training around the, uh, with our nutrition around the workout. And then the next day we are adding a 18 to 24 hour fast. Usually it landed that 18 to 20 hours just because I wanted her to get a meal in every day regardless. I didn't want to go the full day. But this allowed her to cut and uh, actually heal really quick. Her doctor was like shocked. She was healing really quick. She was maintaining muscle mass and she was cutting body fat and weight while doing alternate fast. And I've actually done this with two people now and it's worked really, really well. Um, and it's, it's something that I think everybody can do. Fasting is not always the easiest, but if you just cut out breakfast and lunch and you have a dinner and then the next day is normal because you train upper body um, and you're smart about training, doing way more horizontal rowing than anything else because your back can handle a lot of volume, I think you're going to be good. So that's kind of the strategy I would take. But again, it really depends because I know you said you quit or you left the job, but I mean, is there family stress? Is there relationship stress? Is there more surgery stress than I'm aware of? Is there other work stress? Things like that, mental stress are going to increase cortisol and kind of just lead to more of a nervous system burnout because of the adrenal fatigue aspect of it. Therefore, I might not go with a high fat approach because we know that carbohydrates are going to be very helpful in a high stress environment. So it really depends. But the point of this is simple. Like your number one thing is going to be nutrition. Nutrition is the crux of aesthetic changes, especially when we're talking about losing weight or cutting body fat. And because you can't train your lower body, that means we can't do a lot of cardio. We can't even do low rep stuff. So for you, you're going to want to train upper body three to four days a week with a rowing uh, dominance, just a rowing emphasis on almost every day because that's going to be the safest thing to do high volumes in. Um, you can do some core work and uh, you're definitely going to want to dial in nutrition and it kind of depends. I'd probably do the alternate day fasting, assuming stress isn't too high and cortisol is not crazy. Um, but again, it's, you know, we're just into 2019 and you're about to have surgery. If there's any great time to make sure that you're doing the right things during this time, it's to get a coach. Strength by James. From Instagram, if we're supposed to have one gram per pound of protein, how much of that does our body absorb? So this is a pretty controversial topic, and I think it's it's kind of like unknown because you know there's a lot of say uh, a lot of people out there that will say, and they have a lot of merit to this. Your body absorbs it all; it just takes a while. So that's why, like, if you eat a huge steak, it's not like like if you eat 70 grams of protein in one sitting which I do all the time. Like when we have like steak night, last night was New Year's. So I'm recording this on New Year's day. Um, last night was New Year's Eve and we had steak and lobster and I ate like two fillets. So I definitely had probably like 80 grams of protein in one meal. My body, that's way over the muscle protein synthesis threshold, right? The threshold is about 40 to 45 grams in a single meal of what your body can really absorb right in that moment. Um, that's the most beneficial. So me eating 80 grams of protein really didn't give me any added benefit. I didn't double down on muscle protein synthesis. The difference is, is it's more protein. It's going to take longer to digest. I'm probably going to absorb it more and I'm just going to have more protein slowly digesting overnight during my sleep. That's the reality of it. Usually your body does absorb all of your, all of your protein, especially if you're only eating a gram per pound. If you eat more than a gram per pound, you're probably going to start utilizing it for other processes or piss it out as nit nitrate. Um, but the thing, it's hard to say too because there's a lot of evidence that shows extra, too much extra protein is going to go through gluconeogenesis, which is a very inefficient process in breaking down protein to turn it into glucose for fuel. Not something we want to do because it's very inefficient. It causes uh, faster aging. It's just unhealthy. It's just, it's not a great thing. This is why eating two grams plus or, or two grams per pound of body weight or more is not a good idea. You know, one gram per pound, you're pretty much going to use 
all of that. Um, you, we got to remember too, like if you're eating one gram per pound of protein, how much of that actually gets absorbed and is bioavailable, meaning protein that's actually sufficient in the right amino acids to get converted to muscle glycogen or sorry, muscle tissue. It's probably not going to be that full gram per pound, everything you eat. Some of it is going to get burned because 20, I want to say it's 26% um, is the thermic effect of food when it comes to protein as a macronutrient, which means when I consume protein, 26% of it is going to get burned as fuel to eat the protein, right? So eating a gram per pound will basically ensure that z about 0 0.8, 0 0.75 grams per pound is being consumed and converted for muscle. And that's actually right around the recommendations for what we need as a human being to build muscle. Um, going above one gram per pound really isn't going to be too bad if you're staying in that one to 1.25, maybe even 1.5 grams per pound, depending on your body size. Um, if you're super lean or pretty light, I don't think that's going to be a negative because your body's still going to absorb it. It's going to take a little bit longer. Um, you're going to burn more calories through the thermic effect of food, and you're probably going to just be more satiated through the dieting process. Um, and then once you go over that 1.5 grams per pound, it just gets unnecessary. It's probably not the healthiest thing. And your body's going to be trying to run through the process of gluconeogenesis, which is probably going to negatively impact your body's ability to utilize glucose as fuel because it's trying to convert protein into fuel instead of carbohydrates. So uh, again, that's kind of a long-winded answer and it can be a confusing topic. For those listening that I just completely jumbled thoughts up in your mind and you're just confused as hell now, I think the most important thing for you to do is consume 0 0.8 to 1.2 grams per pound of protein uh, or of protein per pound of body weight depending on your size. If you're a light female who's 115 pounds but you want to cut a little bit of body fat, you're probably going to be in that 1.25 to 1.5 gram range safely because if you eat one gram per pound, you're not even hitting the threshold of muscle protein synthesis. Now, you don't need more protein than that, but it will help you with your results. And I've seen that um, through anecdote, anecdote with a lot of clients. Now, for somebody like myself, I'm about 165 pounds lean. I don't really need much more than 165, but for adherence purposes, I enjoy eating more protein than necessary. So I stay between 185 to 200 grams of protein per day. And it's not because I'm going to get better results with that than 165. It's purely because from an adherence standpoint, I enjoy eating a large steak, a large chicken breast, a large piece of fish, whatever it may be at night. And it ends up being a 60 to 70 gram protein meal. And that just is what it is. It's not going to harm my results. And it's not to the extent where I'm doing anything unhealthy. So I hope that answers that question pretty well. All right. Next question is from Rose... Rose's Roar. This is from an ex-client of mine, Rose, uh, BJJ athlete, um, great girl. But I, Rose's Roar? That's got to be it. Rose's Roar. It's Rose Z Roar. Um, I've never actually read it and looked at what so – you know when you sometimes you're looking at an Instagram name and you never really think twice about what it is. You just kind of read it all the time. And then when you look closely – you realize what it actually says, but beforehand, the way you read it in your mind, you're just kind of making noises. I don't know if that makes sense to you guys, but sometimes I read Instagram names and I just read it and it just sounds like noises in my head. And then when I actually sit here for a Q&A and, and I read it out loud, I realize what it is I'm saying and I was completely off. Anyway, weight loss plateaus. What to do? This is such a long-winded um, answer, I really don't know how to answer it for you because I don't know where you're at right now. We did work together, but I don't know what you've been doing since then. Um, but I'm going to give some examples. And I'm also going to say, like, I'll, I'll link this in the show notes, but I did a, I did a follower Q&A video and I answered this question in there and gave some strategies on it. But the basic premise that I want to lead to you is, is you got to do what you're not doing now, right? So if you're somebody listening and you're at a plateau and you're not tracking macros, now's the time to track macros. Macros are a tool that is designed to give us metrics to be adjusted in order to break through plateaus and see new results. It's all it is. It's not a diet. It's, a t it's something you use when you're at a plateau or you need some kind of metric to gauge or predict where your biofeedback is going to be at. If I need to change my biofeedback, my hormones, my sleep, my energy, my performance, my recovery, anything like that, I use macros as a tool in order to adjust them and see those changes I want to see inside my biofeedback, right? So if you're not tracking macros, track macros. If you've never implemented any type of intermittent fasting, maybe try intermittent fasting. I like it as a once a week kind of like 
quote unquote cleanse, and I hate that word, but the reality is, is it does give your body a break from digesting uh, food. It gives your gut some just relaxation and kind of a period of time to stop working so hard so it can eliminate gut stress. It can be a good like elimination protocol to make sure any autoimmune related stuff is not being um, too harmful on your body. Um, it can improve insulin sensitivity. There's a lot of cool things. And it actually can improve your relationship with food if you just go a day without eating just to show you that you do not rely on food. Food does not control you, but you control the food. And I think that's a very positive outcome from it as well. But that's an easy way to create a bigger caloric deficit, right? If, if you are tracking your macros and it's already hard enough for you to adhere to what you're doing, well, you can create a 1,000 calorie deficit per week which is going to lead to even just a 0.25 pounds per week loss, which is good if you're trying to lose pure fat from a long-term perspective and you don't have a ton of weight to lose. A quarter of a pound a week is great because that's one pound a month, and in three months, you're three pounds down. And for somebody that is very lean already or is semi-lean, that's actually really good if you're in this for the lifestyle. Add to that, you might end up losing a little bit more weight, so bump that up to 0.5 pounds per week because you improve gut health, you improve insulin sensitivity, so on and so forth. And it's just one day a week. So maybe try to implement some kind of intermittent fasting. If you're not nutrient timing yet, this is a great time to implement nutrient timing. You know, there's a lot of people out there that claim nutrient timing is a myth. All that matters is calories in versus calories out. And I agree that's the overall emphasis of what we need to focus on because it is the most important rock in the bucket. But the reality is simple. If you're not doing nutrient timing and you've never done it before, I promise you, you can see better results through it. If you're training hard, if you implement some kind of nutrient timing protocol without changing your calories, it is, it's a very big emphasis. If, uh, and that means, you know, timing your carbs around your workout, timing your carbs in one part of the day. So you have like a lower insulin part of the day versus a higher insulin part of the day. Um, insulin isn't the magic tool to fat loss, but it can help build muscle, which can help lose fat. So there is some merit to that. Um, you can change meal timing to improve digestion, to improve your stress levels, to improve recovery. Like there's a lot of nutrient timing strategies that actually can be pretty beneficial to help you push through your, your, uh, weight loss plateau. Let's see here. Um, if you are very flexible with your approach, maybe too flexible, Try to up your micronutrient density. I've done this with multiple people where they come to me at a plateau. They're practicing flexible dieting. They're like, I've been tracking my macros. What's wrong? And I look at their macros and I'm like, you know, it's really not bad. You're in a deficit. Things are going well. I don't want to cut you more. You're training hard. Like, let's do this. I see a lot of chips or crackers or snacks or little things fit in. And I don't see an abundance of green vegetables or eating all of your protein instead of drinking protein shakes, things like that actually do add up. So what I tend to do is focus on the micronutrient, right? Let's not have so many shakes. Let's have real protein that you have to chew, digest, and boost your thermic effect of food. Let's implement more greens, more colors, some fruits, some starchy vegetables like sweet potatoes that are very nutrient-dense, and let's see what your body does. Let's hold back on the quote-unquote overly flexible diet and just give yourself a break from that and really double down on nutrients, and we see a plateau, and that's not changing calories at all. And you actually feel like you're eating more food because healthier food like that is more filling. So there's a lot of ways you can do this. Um, training, you can change your training, your cardio. You can add to your volume so you're doing more work every day in the gym. You can change your intensities. You can vary your intensities. You can do more cardio. You can add more steps per day. You can do the stand efforting thing where you're doing three 10-minute walks a day. There's so many ways to change, uh, to break through plateaus. And again, it's, it's really going to come down to getting specific, trying one specific thing and just getting consistent with it. Or if you're stuck and you really want to break plateau again, I'm just going to shameless plug, hire a coach. I think that's the smartest thing to do. All right. Aaron Davis, another client of mine, shout out to Aaron. Long-term sustainable weight loss versus fast cutting weight loss. I think this is her, uh, she is also becoming a coach. So I think this is her way of getting, uh, some just more information at, from the coaching standpoint of how you should do things. I think this really depends, you know, like I think that there's a time and place for both. Um, I'm kind of 50, 50 on it. If somebody comes to me and they are an A type personality, they want to get after it. They need some instant gratification. They need to see a reward in order to have motivation and they aren't in a metabolically adapted or scary 
negative position, meaning I don't need to reverse diet them. They're eating enough food. They are healthy. They're training hard, so on and so forth. They come to me, and I know they're A-type personality. They're a go-getter. They want to see results right away. This type of person, I am probably actually going to go with a fast-cutting approach. Now, I am going to implement diet breaks or refeeds or some type of periodization to make sure that they are not just cutting hard for 16 weeks straight and then there's no plan afterwards like there's always a method to my periodization inside my nutrition coaching so even if I'm going with a fast cutting approach I'm probably going for like four weeks really hard in a big deficit and then one week of a maintenance diet break going back into that deficit just to keep our hormones in check and just make sure that we're not having any negative adaptations to their hormones or their central nervous system or their adrenals um and that's just because I always have to have health in the, in the client's best interest from a long-term standpoint, even if I'm going with a fast-cutting approach. But the reason I would do this with somebody is because if they're healthy, there's no reason we can't create a big deficit and see results fast. If somebody comes to me in a healthy position, that's the best scenario because I can pull calories, I can add training, push them, and we can see results right away. Now, even if somebody comes to me and they're like, hey, I'm in this for the year, if they're in a healthy place, I'm still going to cut fast because what's the point of drawing it out if they're in a healthy place? I can go hard for three to four weeks, pull back for one to two weeks and do that pattern, get them to the result in four months instead of eight, six months instead of 12, whatever it may be. I can go way faster and then we can focus on reverse dieting and creating a new maintenance, which is going to be um, a maintenance as in their calories and as in their body fat level. So resetting their body fat set point. So I would love to go fast cutting for most people as long as there is some form of periodization in there. I have a diet for after the diet. I have refeeds and diet breaks implemented in. I, I do have a plan for maintenance to make sure that we're not adapting in a negative way hormonally or metabolically. This is very, very important. Now, if somebody comes to me and they do need a reverse diet, they have a negative history with dieting, they have a bad history with overtraining, high-stress lifestyle, or chronic deficits – which is most people um, that I work with, then these people I'm going with a long, sustainable weight loss approach, right? So for them, even if they have that A-type personality, I'm going to tell them like, hey, I know you want to get after it and I want to get after it with you so bad so you can see this result ASAP, but the reality is we need to go slow because any faster is going to lead right where you once were. Feeling like shit, not being at your result, and metabolically adapted to a low caloric standpoint. Um, and I see that all the time. And the reality is, is if you've ever had to reverse diet, um, not in the sense of like, oh, I got lean and I slowly brought calories up because I do that with people all the time and that's not an unhealthy thing. But to the point where I was in a chronic deficit for a year, uh, my body is very damaged and we have to take a slow approach up. I'm not going to take a fast cut with you because your body's not going to respond well to it. Um, and I've done this with clients to prove a point. You know, we've gone through a reverse. They're not being patient. They're like, hey, I want to see the result, like, I want to do this, let's go into a cut, I feel great, and I'm like, okay, like, I don't think you're ready, and they're like, I, I, I want to do this, I have to give them what they want, what we'll do is we'll take a hard cut for a few weeks, and we'll see nothing, right, and the reason we see nothing is because their body is just not ready to lose fat, they're still not in the metabolic position that we want them to be, so um, I think it's important to read your client, I think it's important important to have some kind of nutritional periodization, even if you don't voice it to the client, even when I don't talk to my clients specifically about the periodization plan because it'll just confuse them or overwhelm them or they just have no interest in it, which is fine. That's my job, not theirs. I have a plan in the back of my mind of exactly how we're going to go about the next one, two, three, four, five, six, even up to 12 months of nutrition with them. So it's very, very important to consider these things. Um, and yeah, so I think it really depends. Now, the other difference is adherence. That's the only other time. Like certain, and again, this comes back to personality types. Some people adhere better when I can go right at it and give them some kind of result that they're going to see fast progress with. And then other people, that's too overwhelming. It's too restrictive. It's too, it's too, it's not flexible enough. It's not sustainable enough for those people. There's no point in it because even if we do a fast cutting approach, it's going to last two weeks and they're going to fall off. Whereas some people like to get strict. So I think there is a time for rigid meal plans for those people. So I hope that answered that well. Dusty Ruger can under eating for your training result in quote-unquote skinny fat yeah so this one is uh it's common so under eating is going to like this is kind of like where we look at weight loss versus fat loss right we want to target fat loss fat loss 
is creating a nutritional program where you are going to be burning fat, maintaining as much muscle as possible, and maintaining, if not increasing, your performance and recovery as you go because you're dialing in nutrient timing, you're focusing on the macronutrient prescription, so on and so forth. Whereas weight loss would be like, hey, I'm creating a caloric deficit. All I'm tracking is my calories. Nutrient timing doesn't matter. Nothing else matters. You're going to lose weight, but you're not going to maintain muscle and performance as much, so you're probably going to lose some muscle mass as well. So you get weight loss, and this leads to getting skinny fat. When I first dieted down, I got skinny fat, partially because I had no muscle to begin with. The second reason was because I tracked calories, and I focused on eating a low-caloric diet, but I didn't focus on eating enough protein, eating enough carbs, so on and so forth. I just ate low-calorie. And thirdly, I didn't prioritize nutrients. Uh, I really just ate again, low calorie, and I just ate what I wanted. I didn't focus on greens. I didn't focus on nutrients and minerals and vitamins and things like that. Um, I didn't focus on nutrient timing. I just ate in a caloric deficit, and I got skinny fat. Um, And I think there's a big merit to say, like, you have to build muscle first. So I think what's important for people to remember is as you're training for fat loss, especially from the get-go, so if you're just starting your journey and you're moving towards fat loss as the ultimate goal, you want to make sure that you're lifting weights and you're lifting heavy and you're creating tension in your muscles. You're learning how to activate your muscles. And the reason this is important is because you need to have a foundation of muscle mass prior to losing fat. When you lose weight, when you lose fat, you will strip away layers And what's beneath that is what's going to show you your result. So I see a lot of people who lose a ton of weight. They get to their final result and they're like, fuck, I'm not what I thought I would look like. Like, shit, I thought I was going to lose weight and look like the dude on Muscle and Fitness. I thought I was going to be jacked. I was like, I'm going to get ripped. I'm going to have abs. I got lean and skinny, but I didn't have any abs. I didn't have chest. I was like, okay, shit, I got to figure out how to bench press. I got to figure out how to build abs. I got to figure out how to build a nice set of traps so I can have, like, some, like, just a big yoke on my back, like, These people, these athletes I wanted to look like, I wasn't training like them. I was eating in a caloric deficit, and that's it. So I think under-eating can absolutely result in skinny fat. Um, You said for your training. I don't know what your training is. So I think if you're doing the right things to build muscle, I think you're going to be in a good position. Now, if you're not prioritizing nutrient timing, macronutrients specific to your training, specific to your lifestyle, specific to your goals – Um, and you're not getting enough protein in, I don't think you're going to get lean in the way that we like to think about as men chasing an athletic body. I think you might result in skinny fat because you're not doing the right protocols. And the same thing goes with overdoing cardio and underdoing weight training, right? If you're doing a ton of cardio and you're not really lifting weights heavy and you're not doing any type of bodybuilding, then I do believe you're going to end up skinny fat. No idea how to pronounce this one. I'm just going to be completely honest with you guys. Cell puste blume. And you know what's funny? This is what I'm talking about. Like, I was saying somebody's name so wrong. I was like, this doesn't even make sense. And then when they were like, uh, oh, my name's Dahlia. I was like, that's what it says. (laughs) So I'm probably reading this and just butchering it, and it probably really does make sense. So I apologize. But her question is, or his question, I guess I don't know. um, How do I know if I am on a maintenance calorie or my metabolism just slowed down? So you are at maintenance calories if your calories are set and you are maintaining your weight. And that will happen if your metabolism has slowed down. So I think, I think you're asking two things, but in reality, they're the same thing. See, a lot of people, they're at their maintenance calories because their metabolism has slowed down. So once upon a time, my maintenance was 2,500 calories. And as I dieted and brought my calories down, now uh, my calories are lower but I'm maintaining my weight still. I'm not losing weight anymore. What's going on? Well, your metabolism slowed down as you brought your calories down, and now it's created a new maintenance. That's the point of reverse dieting after a diet. So the perfect scenario is going through um, a diet protocol and implementing diet breaks, and they show this in science to be every three to five weeks is probably going to be the most advantageous, even like six weeks. Um, You're going to be better off. Like If your goal is to get super lean in 12 weeks, you're going to want to take one week for every three, three to four weeks tax that onto your goal. So that 12 weeks becomes 14 weeks. And every fourth week, you're doing a diet break at maintenance levels. This week-long process of being at your old maintenance calories, your higher level caloric intake, is going to make sure that your metabolism does not slow down. It's going to make sure that your adrenals don't get fatigued. It's going to make sure that your training performance stays up, your glycogen stores stays up, your testosterone if you're a guy, stays up, your estrogen levels are balanced, like all these different hormonal protocols and uh, hormonal 
balances and, and systems that we need to manage along the way during a diet, it's going to ensure that these do not slow down, um, which does include your metabolism. But the process of that means you have to periodize your nutrition. Like this is why nutritional periodization is so huge. And I'm going to link, man, I did an infographic. I did a video. I did a blog on this. I should, I should do a podcast and maybe I will, but I did a lot of information one week on nutritional periodization because I feel like it's a very under-consumed topic. I feel like it's a very unpopular protocol for coaches to implement and clients to take in and, and adopt. But the reality is it's so fucking important to see long-term results because you need to implement these things to make sure you're not damaging your metabolism. So how do you know if you're at maintenance? Well, you're at maintenance calories if you are maintaining your weight at the caloric intake you're taking in right now. That is your maintenance calories right now. And if it is lower than it once was, then that means your metabolism has slowed down as your calories lowered. This is why tracking macros or tracking calories is an important task for a lot of people to do because we need to make sure that we're not doing these things. Johan Soberg, any tips on holiday weight gain? Maybe some strategies both mentally but also science slash data-ish. So... Um, few things on this. Number one, during the holidays, we are going to see higher carbohydrate foods. We're going to see higher sodium foods because a lot of foods are going to be processed or we're going to be eating out a lot or we're going to be cooking and adding salts. We're going to have higher stress. We're going to have less sleep. We're going to have more work. Like the list goes on of reasons why your body is going to be high, having higher cortisol levels and is going to have slower digestion, shittier digestion, and it's going to retain more water. Therefore, a lot of time weight gain is just fluctuation and it will pass. The worst thing somebody can do is go through the holidays, get discouraged because their weight jumped up a little bit, and then just say fuck it to their diet and end up gaining more weight in that process afterwards because they're not paying attention. The best thing you can do is just get right back to where you were. So my strategy for myself is Christmas, I didn't track a damn thing. I had fun. Drink like we were supposed to go over the mountain. We actually stayed home just as a family because we couldn't drive over the mountain with the snow um, to visit family. So for us, it was like let's drink mimosas all day, watch stupid Christmas movies, and just eat whatever the hell we want. And we did, and I had a blast, and I was way over my calories. The next day, I fasted, not because I was trying to kind of, uh, I mean, in a way, I'm trying to mitigate the damage so I can actually balance that out throughout the week. But I didn't track the next day still. I just ate less and I fasted and partially because I was just bloated as shit from having a great day of food. So that kind of combated that. And then I just went right back to where I was. I was three pounds up two days later, right? Probably still a lot of bloat, maybe a little fat. Who cares? I went right back to where I was, which was my um, regular maintenance calories. And after a week or two, my weight will balance out. The worst thing you can do is try to go super hard right after Christmas because that will die out and you will get into this cyclical pattern of going hard and then binging, going hard and then binging. And it's just not smart. So my best advice is to get back right to where you were right before the holiday. My advice for anybody who didn't have a place that they were, meaning you didn't track your nutrition, you didn't have a specific plan set out for you, you weren't part of a training program. My advice to you is to hire somebody to do that for you or to join a group or to buy a program or do something that's going to give you some motivation and give you some structure to actually start moving towards your goals now that the holidays are over because it is a great time. I had to drink water. I'm getting cotton mouth from these questions. And he said maybe some uh, both mentally uh, – but also strategies like, I, I, again, I think going back and not stressing, right? Like don't weigh yourself for a week after the holiday. Um, do a little fasting if you need to, if your gut is a little stressed. Get back to on plan to what you were already doing or find some structure so you can just get moving forward and don't stress. Like uh, nobody should have a goal at the new year to lose as much as possible the first month. Like I think that's the worst thing to do. A lot of people set New Year's goals and it's like the first 30 days of New Year's, I'm going to go hard and lose 20 pounds and – Get off on a good start and create some momentum. Hoorah. And it's like, no, don't fucking do that because it's not going to last. You're going to go so hard that you're going to regret and hate every part of dieting. What you should do is create a sustainable plan and set a six-month goal. Make it past February March. Be the minority. All right. We got two more questions left. Mutsa Volmer from the Boom Boom Elite wants to know, what does a good morning routine look like? I think this depends on the person, right? So some people, I go back and forth on this. You know, I teach my mentor clients a specific morning routine um, that I created, but I don't truly follow it to the T. And the reason I don't is because this was the morning routine 
that helped shift me into a place where I prioritized my time and I created time blocks and I learned how to be productive. So my shift six protocol that I provide my mentor clients is more like a protocol that we use to get them into a place of power and productivity. Then as time goes on and they get extremely consistent, we actually tweak this to kind of fit their mold, right? So at first it's like we have to go through these specific protocols in order to wake up, get clarity, find your purpose, understand your why, knock out your most important tasks, and then move forward into the day to get the rest of the day done, right? So there's like principles of movement and meditation and journaling practices that are very specific and things like that that are going to help. Now, I know people like Craig Valentine, who is one of my mentors, that he's very big on just not checking any notifications and doing your top five tasks. So for him, it's more like, okay, I'm, I'm up. I'm not checking any notifications, but I am going to finish that blog, set up that meeting, record that podcast, blah, 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 blah. Like his five most important things. That way when it hits 10 a.m. and he's starting to check text messages and emails and stuff, everything that was very critical to him getting done is now done and he can move forward with the rest of his tasks through the day, which I think is very good as well. I kind of sit in the middle of that now. Now that I've prioritized my mornings, now that I've followed shift six, I mean, I created that and followed it for a year myself before I taught anybody that. And I took pieces of all these different mentors I've had over the years, pieces of these programs I've been a part of over the years, and I created my own morning routine system. That helped me accomplish power. That helped me accomplish productivity. It helped give purpose to my mornings and understand what I need to do to move forward. So for me, those were huge, right? But now it's kind of somewhere in the middle. I go through those tasks in the morning routine a little bit quicker. I get few of my most important tasks in the day done um, before anything else. Then I actually train. I shift my training to mornings because I just, I'm just more clear in the mornings. And then the rest of my day is doing stuff that I need to get done. So a lot of times for me in the morning, it is gain clarity on my purpose, my life, my, my family, my appreciation, like those mental things that I need to fuel me. And then it is creating content in the most important areas. So this podcast, my blog, newsletters, those type of things. Um, my most creative work when my brain is fresh, then I work out and then I get on with the rest of my day doing all the other things I need to do. Program design, emails, all those things. So I think it really depends who you're at, who you are and where you're at. But I think the important thing is writing it down and sticking to it. The only way for you to know is to start doing the morning routine and learning what works for you. So the best morning routine is probably going to be something that you learn how to do over time. You know, you try different things. You try different ways. You, you schedule different times. You wake up at different times. Um, I think the most important thing is just that y you commit to it. You wake up early. You do something for yourself. You do something for your body. You do something for your relationship. And then you get on to the most important parts of work. Um, that's the best way I can describe it without working with you directly. All right, the last question. I saved this one for last on purpose because I still don't know how the hell to answer it. Leah Yoder, FBBC from the Boom Boom Elite, said, what is your favorite musician of all time? I'm a, music, I'm a big music fan, and I told Leah, I said, can I choose one for each genre? Like, that is so hard. And she said, no, I need you to choose one, but if you need to break it into categories, you can. So what I, this is very, very hard. So I have different – I'm going to – I'm sorry. I can't just give you one. I'm going to have to give you categories. So – I think the greatest – I'm going to do a couple categories. I think not my favorite band of all time, but I believe the greatest band of all time in the rock genre – see, this is tough too because part of me goes the Beatles because they were such a revolutionary group that I think it's important to give them recognition. But the first people that come to my mind is Led Zeppelin. And I think so because they were for the first quote-unquote kind of metal, you know, and then um, Black Sabbath and people like that came out too. But um, – and actually, you know what? Black Sabbath might have been just before at the same time. So maybe they were the first like real metal. But, you know, Led Zeppelin to me is just a – such a – I don't even know what the right word is. Like uh, a – such an important figure in the rock and roll community and history. I think what they created and the way they created it and the way they came about it and their story and their style and, and their talent. I mean, fuck, Jimmy Page, the guitarist, is unbelievable. Um, so to me, like the greatest rock band of all time has to be uh, Led Zeppelin. The greatest hip-hop artist of all time, the greatest rapper of all time, not necessarily my favorite, but I would give that to Notorious B.I.G., I believe Biggie was better than Tupac. I think he was more lyricist. I believe Tupac was just a hype man. 
um, and just excitement and all just just hype, just thrill, just excitement, just uh, loudness and, and people gravitated towards that because he did create a movement. He was very loud and in your face and I think that gravitated a lot of people towards him just like NWA did. Um, and I think they both had such a pivotal role in hip hop and I love them both. But I do believe that from a, a lyrical standpoint, from a swagger standpoint, from a musical standpoint, I think Biggie is the greatest rapper of all time. My favorite artist, rap rap artist of all time is different. My favorite rock and roll artist of all time is different. So I'm going to go into these categories, right? So my favorite hip-hop artist, just because it's on my mind now, would be Jay-Z. I think just from a person, I respect him and I like him as an artist the most in the hip-hop world. I think he has come out with more hits than almost anybody. I've never not liked an album of his. Some of my favorite songs are his. Um, watching his evolution from uh, Reasonable Doubt, which was, I believe, his first album ever when he was just a kid, going all the way to what he is coming out with now, Magna Carter and stuff like that. I think the evolution of him into from a just like a hoodlum to a boss has just been so cool. He's such a businessman. So from a respect standpoint and what I watch from him, I really, really, truly enjoy seeing what he puts out and learning from him even. Um, so my favorite rap artist, favorite hip hop artist of all time is definitely going to be Jay-Z. My favorite rock and roll. Now, see, and then, now I'm going to go into two categories too. So I'm going to go favorite rock and roll and then I'm going to go favorite band of all time because you said favorite artist of all time and I'm going to give you that. Um, but I think my favorite band of all time, oh, fuck, this is hard for rock and roll. My favorite, it's, it's honestly, it's harder for me because I think in rock it's, it's, there's been a lot of people who have come out with such excellent albums and then their streak ends. There's a lot of rock artists that come out with just really good albums, maybe even like two or three albums in a row that are really great. But out of 10, the majority of them were just cool. Um, hip hop artists are very similar, but except they have like a one hit wonder. They have a great song and then the rest of their albums are done or they're just, they crush every album. Jay-Z crush every album. Drake crush every album. Lil Wayne crush every album, right? Like those people never did bad. Uh, rock's a little bit different. Um, I think that Incubus is a close one for me because I believe, you know, most of their work was good, but they did get kind of weird for a while. But like one to Two of their albums for sure were just fucking great, and I had them on repeat for a long time. I love their albums, two or three of them actually, uh, but they have a lot of albums, so it's hard. Um, I love Alice in Chains, but again, they had like one really great album, one okay album, and then the Unplugged was a mixture of the two albums that was great. So I love Alice in Chains, I love Soundgarden, I love Pearl Jam, I love Seattle Grunge quite a bit, but most of those people I love like one album a lot. So what I would say. For the greatest band of all time, in my opinion, is going to be Oasis. And the reason I think Oasis is because I've never once heard a bad song from Oasis, ever. And I've searched Spotify extensively <laughs> for every Oasis song there is. Um, I believe, like, I can listen to them when I'm working out. I can listen to them when I'm cooking dinner. I can listen to them when I'm driving, when I'm doing work. They're slow. There's fast. There's upbeat. There's so many different styles. His voice has so many tunes and pitches to it. Um, from a lyrical and from a musician standpoint, the brothers were just fucking geniuses. They were super smart. Um, it's sad how it ended, but I believe that Oasis is probably my favorite band of all time. Here's what I want you guys to do. Since I just went on a really long rant on music, if you are a music fan, if you are a music lover, if you agreed with any of what I said or if you disagree, what I want you to do is post a screenshot of this uh, podcast on your Instagram story, tag me, and write your favorite band of all time. What is the best band of all time? Even better, you don't even have to tag a picture of the podcast. Just do a blank screen on your Instagram. It can be a blank black screen. This is even better. I like this. Do a blank black screen, screenshot it, tag me at Cody Boom Boom, and give me the best hip-hop artist of all time, the best rock and roll artist of all time, your favorite in both category, and your favorite of all time, or one or two of the other. If you hate rock and you only like rap, just do that. But I want to know your favorite artist. I want to see if any of them were Sam. I think that would be a really cool and fun thing to do on Instagram, and we can start getting some people tagging me, and I'll start sharing them, and I'll start posting mine up too. So tag me. Share your favorite artists. Guys, I will talk to you next time. Happy New Year's. All right, guys, that is a wrap. I hope you enjoyed the show today. A couple quick announcements before I let you go. First and foremost, I just want to encourage you to check out the products I have in the description. First one, 
is the nutrition hierarchy. This is a very cheap guide to literally mastering your diet. That's why it's called the all-inclusive guide to mastering your diet. It's going to teach you exactly what and how to manage your calories, your macros, your meal timing, your supplements, your micronutrients, literally everything you need to know about dieting and nutrition and how to change your body composition through nutrition is included in this book, not just to get your results, but to actually teach you how to get those results along the way. The next thing is going to be functional muscle, which is my first and right now my biggest product out there. This is the program that is based on years and years and years of functional training with tons of clients. So whether your goal is strength, fat loss, or muscle gain, you should be strength training towards these goals while prioritizing functional movement patterns to make sure that you are avoiding any injuries along the way. That's exactly what this program does, and it's great because it guides you through the process, it changes throughout the process, and it gives you demonstrations and explanations about everything you're doing so you never get confused and you always have a solution. You also get access into the Boom Boom Performance Podcast Forum, and that is the only way into the forum, and that's where you can ask me literally anything about anything, and I will help guide you through the process. Last thing I want to mention, guys, is if you could leave me a five-star rating and review, that would be fantastic because it literally is one of the biggest and best ways for me to grow in the iTunes charts. Oh, yeah, and real quick, if you're not subscribed, hit the damn subscribe button because I constantly bust out content for you guys, and I spent a lot of time and effort making sure that you guys can get better results for free by simply listening to this podcast. All right, guys, I'll catch you next time.